Hi, I'm Chelsea Wills. I'm an artist, mother, writer, and the person who asks a lot of the questions around here at Full Moon. I will be talking about what it means to live a creative life and why that matters right now. We will be hearing the stories of people who actually live creative lives, why they do it, and what it means. This podcast is part of a bigger project called Full Moon. Full Moon is an experiment in creative living for and by artists using livelihood as form. In that spirit, this show will be experimental. Sometimes this show will look like a series of meditations or audio tours, and often it will sound like conversations between people about their creative practices. Here we go. Today I talk with Emily Torela. Emily Torela is an artist, educator, and facilitator in Montague, Massachusetts. She is compelled by the ideal conditions individuals and communities need to make, learn, be curious, and engage meaningfully in and with the world. Her work often takes the forms of workshops, gatherings, meals, events, and writing, enacting practices in sustainability, well-being, and lifelong learning. Emily is a core member of the collective BFA, MFA, PhD. She received a BA from Bennington College and an MFA from the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. Today we start with an essay she wrote for some friend's wedding last summer. She starts by talking about tenderness, and we thought this was an, an especially important thing to begin with as we navigate these uncertain times of a worldwide pandemic. So let's jump right in with the essay and I'm happy to be here. To describe something today. as tender can be the soft place between lips and pillows in the morning. And it can also be the bruise, the sore muscles after laboring, the eyes after crying, the heart when it is healing, and even when it is overcome. It can be the skin of a baby when life is new, or the petals of the lupin's flowers. Describing something as tender means a quiet beauty and a healing or repairing. It's also an acknowledgement of vulnerability, of openness, a glimmer into that animal place. A tender can also be a noun, one in which someone or something or many beings or things are being tended to. Tending is always in relationship to the flame, to the stew, to the mother, to the wound, to the garden. It can be joyous, it can be beautiful, mundane, tragic, hopeful. It can feel like a delaying to an ending, a growing, or even a perpetuating. Being a tender is giving acknowledgement, care, and maintenance. Being a tender is being devoted. A tenderness has two definitions. One, as a gentleness and a kindness, and two, as a sensitivity to pain. It seems strange that these two definitions are separate rather than together, when they more so seem to rely on one another. A tenderness might be something quiet, private, a moment when the hand is pressed to the heart, or whisper, or maybe never even said out loud. But of course, tendernesses sing and moan and shout, the intimate made public, a surprise. Trying to think that that's kind of the more general information part of the speech that really isn't about the ecosystem, but I could talk a little bit about that and kind of where that comes from and how that relates 
to these interconnected kind of system and ecosystem ideas. Yeah, um, let's do that. But maybe before you do that, let's just contextualize where this sure. comes from a little. Well, we're we're talking um, from our houses. Or it's I don't know what day it is. It's March something twenty fifth, maybe. Is that right? I think 26th. it's twenty sixth. <laughs> Okay, that's I'm a little bit lost track of what day it is. Um, but it's 2020, and we are all, or many of us, are sheltered in place during this global pandemic. And the last time that we talked, um, we were deciding what to talk about and how I think practices of care exist within creative practices for us and what that might look like. Um, and I think we were also talking about allyship. Mm-hmm. Right? right? So that feels like a really, the, the idea of tenderness feels like a perfectly appropriate place to start. And then I'd love to hear mm-hmm. what you're thinking about ecosystems. Yeah, so I think um, I I truthfully have been struggling with what to think about talking about today because in the past couple weeks, I've been very quiet and I've been more inward and I suppose I've been tending in every sense of the word and feeling very tender Um, I live in Western Massachusetts, and um, we went from having a few days that were in the the 60s and then also got snow on Sunday and Monday. Um, So we've got the daffodils, but we also have some really cold weather. I have a new puppy, um, so I've been spending a lot of time with her, going on a lot lot of walks and um, trying to step away from the computer as I'm working from home. Um, and within all of this, I've also been spending a lot of time in my home. Uh, I recently moved a few months ago. And so thinking about this kind of internal ecosystem that I have with my partner, um, and this world of work, uh, that I'm kind of bringing into my domestic space that I'm also thinking about, but the excerpt of this essay that I just read, um, was from the vows and ceremony that I prepared to facilitate for my friend's wedding this past August. Um, And they had, in kind of their inspiration for their ceremony, something they suggested that I listen to is an interview with the poet Ross Gay um, from On Being. And he has a, a project called The Tenderness Project that I think is really beautiful. And, um, so that's something that was very inspiring to me and um, ultimately became kind of a keystone in this speech for them. Um, and then another theme that these friends, Hannah Patterson and Ethan Kiermeyer, brought to the fore is this idea that they were, in all of their efforts, um, trying to create and cultivate um, and nourish this ecosystem, um, not only with each other, this kind of habitat, 
um, that they were cultivating, but then how that fit into a greater ecosystem with their friends, their family, their community, their natural resources, their spirituality. Um, and I, I think I've been keeping that that metaphor and, and also that reality in my mind during a time when I feel very physically apart from a lot of people and ideas and places that I consider a part of my ecosystem um, and how how to kind of keep them present in in my life and um, encourage others to do the same. What, like, how do you think, I think you have just described like fairly well, like how you have been doing that for yourself. How do you see that for other people in mm. this time? Well, I hope that more than anything, people are giving themselves permission to more acutely listen to themselves and their bodies. Um, and if something feels good, that probably means that it's, that it is good. <laughs> um, you know, that if you're thinking about missing someone to let them know um, that if there's that sore spot in the shoulder to just lay on the floor for a while and stretch, that if you wish that you could, um, you know, take, take a certain walk, go if you can, but then also to recognize that there are a lot of people in very active pain, um, and, and suffering and loss and mourning and, um, figuring out ways that, you can in any way possible show show support but truly in a way that feels good to you um and then to also disengage and unplug a little bit I think um that kind of slowing down and doing a lot of listening um not from the media but just kind of listening inside and outside is really helpful, at least for me. And I, I feel as though that's kind of a common theme that I've heard from other people. Um, and it's really incredible to know that, you know, the world is the natural world. The earth is still moving and growing and changing, even in light of all of this that's happening. And I think that's really helpful to remind us that we are a part of the world. We don't solely author the world. Well, when I think when I think about the word ecosystem, I I think it's like a really um, powerful uh, imagined and real space right now because we are not the center of it, right? Mm -hmm. Like humans are not inherently the center of the ecosystem, um, either as individuals or as a collective, which I think in the time of, like in a time of great focus on something, for me, there's something like deeply reassuring about the continuance and the ability to recognize that our experience as individuals, as humans, and as collective as humans mm -hmm. is really only one, right, that's going mm -hmm. on. And, um, so I say that as I look out the window and the plum tree is blooming and just in the last few days, the frogs have come back to the pond 
that I live by, there must be like some temperature that they all come out. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in this time of quiet, there's like so many way markers of like of inclusion, of getting to be a part of something greater that often, at least for me, really gets drowned out with the noise of my own experience. And, um, you know, for better or for worse, I think like the maintenance of everyone's experience around me too, like Mm -hmm. real, unreal. (laughs) Yes. Um, um, you know, this, this maintenance of, uh, like a, co- a collective obliged feeling that people have to, to know what everyone else is doing, um, and that that can be a substitute for care. You know, I, I think that that noise can feel really overwhelming sometimes, um, kind of that keeping up without maybe actually connecting, um, is really is really difficult but i'd love to know what you were going to ask too let's circle back around to that because i think that i think that's really important right now that like i'm not quite sure what the right word is but the the well i'm like picturing a scroll right the timeline like the Mm -hmm. timeline of life sort of like Mm -hmm. uh, down to its minutiae but Mm. what i was ask you is something that exists like as a as a viewer or an audience of your work is this like your ability to hold multiplicity in things right so I think about for instance like the goldenrod project and using one plant but it sort of felt to me like it could be lots of things Mm. kind of as a portal, right? So all the, all the things that the plant does and who the plant reminds you of and who the plant lets you be and where the plant lets you go and the experiences it opens to you. And it's, you know, all of these, all of these different things um, that feels like, well, I'll rephrase that. Like, what does that feel like to hold that multiplicity? Hmm. Always. What does it feel like now, as you as you do that in this way that maybe isn't quite as visible? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I really and I really like that you use the word portal because um, I think you know I always find these certain words that, you know, seem to work for me, you know, it's in my, like, my own work, my interior word bank. And um, I always use the word lens. It's like, I'm, I'm using goldenrod as a lens through which to see my world right now. But I also love this portal, you know, as a way, there's a different kind of embodiment, maybe in portal that I really like. So Thanks for mentioning that. Um, I I feel really grateful that somehow I've been able to um, really easily hold an understanding of multiplicity 
Um, and that's really maybe what, what drives my practice more than anything, that kind of idea that it, that an object or a plant or a conversation or an experience or the let the quality of light coming through a window, that it can be everything and it can be nothing. And that choosing to be generous, um, in the way that, that we look or wonder about something is, I think what, what drives me to feel excited and curious and filled with empathy in the world. And I love facilitating opportunities for other people to do the same. And especially as I grow older, um, I become really wary and nervous of losing that capacity um, to be dazzled with the everyday lived experience and not simply giving something importance because of its material material value or um, you know it's it's momentary moment in the sun you know um, or being recognized by others as as being important but truly um, just remarking on its particular qualities and letting that be an association to something else. Um, I think that that really helps me one think about, you know, um, these interconnected systems that allow us to live, um, that we are part of this ecosystem, as you kind of mentioned before. Um, and then to also just remember that we too have our place in this world of vibrant matter. Um, and it has been a really big gift, I think, in the past three or four years of my practice to be able to um, engage in projects with, within that kind of multiplicity portal lens realm. Um, yeah, it's really, I love being in that space because it also makes it that um, projects can largely be accessible to a wider group of people. Um, I became really nervous that my work was becoming more insular or really only for like a particular kind of like art educated um, class or access audience. Um, and so wanting to make, make things, make projects that were visible in people's everyday lived experiences. Do you think that people like can do that in their lives? Like, do you think that people who are not artists or, or don't, wouldn't describe themselves like that, do you think they mm -hmm. have like that? You know, it sounds, just jump in if I'm kind of overstepping here, but that, that, that curiosity driven practice of um, like finding something that attracts you for some reason, right? Whether it be. Mm -hmm moon or the goldenrod or teaching people about you know things that feel good to you and seeing if it feels good to them um, <laughs> yeah that's a great question I I sure as hell hope so or else we're all doomed <laughs> um you know I think that people who have um a spiritual practice often have that ability, um, regardless of what that spirituality is. I think by and large that lens was really cultivated in me because I have a liberal arts background, um, kind of in the truest sense of the word. And 
Um, but I, of course, know so many people who um, have chosen not to go to college or haven't had the opportunity to go to college who, who also have that. Um, but I do think that there's kind of an inherent relationship between this kind of curiosity itch, um, and folks who enjoy play. Um, and there's a kind of vulnerability in, in both curiosity and play, um, that I find to be really interesting. Um, well, I'm thinking about like this, one of, one of the ways people are talking about like this time of so many people being at home is like through, you know, all the activities you can do while stuck at home. Right. This mm. is like, that's the language. Right. So I'm thinking about this idea of like stress baking. Yes. <laughs> people are really stress baking. But maybe they just like to bake. Right. I mean, maybe they were just curious about baking. I'm not saying those things are like mutually exclusive or something. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. You know, one thing when I hear you talk about that discovery process is that it's like not productivity driven. Yeah, you're exactly right. Your projects, I mean, I don't know what they look like. I don't know what it looks like to be you and your projects, but I think they're, they're like surprisingly simple sometimes in their presentation. Hmm right? That a lot happens that is not the object that happens at the end. Right. And I think mm-hmm. a little earlier in this conversation, we were talking about that idea of, of keeping up all the time or those benchmarks or those things of knowing that you're going somewhere. And it seems like if you're following curiosity, you must have some sense you're going somewhere. Like it doesn't, you 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 do end up with a project at the end of it, but you're not necessarily like chronicling the minutia hmm. of, of what's unfolding, right? So I, I guess I'm trying to kind of like tease out this difference here hmm. of mm-hmm. all this sort of internal curiosity that absolutely interacts with the world, but it's not like. And then on this day, Emily did this. And then, <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. And I would never call myself a researcher. Um, okay. And I also would don't necessarily regard my practice as a performance. I think. Um, uh-huh. I think a lot of a lot of I know that a lot of people have asked me about both of those um, kind of uh-huh. words or terms in the past, and both of those certainly allude to, in my mind to what you were talking about is this um, kind of like product oriented outcome. Um, and I, I think that in, in my practice, I'm not as interested in those kinds of deliverables that ultimately what I'm trying to get at is an invitation um, to others to kind of explore and be curious in this in not in the same fashion as in following my same thought pattern, um, but to give permission to think and feel in an embodied way how 
it is that we are where we are and how you are in relation to other people and how you are also in relation to the planet. And actively practicing those kinds of thought experiments or actions or conversations, um, active listening, I I truly feel like that can be a profound transformation culturally. And so I, I just hope to facilitate that for others as much as possible. Um, and ultimately for myself, you know, I think I make this work because I find that it's really helpful for me. Um, and so I have to imagine that it can also be helpful for other people. Um, I think that's also why I really enjoy the format of, of scores. So a lot of my work is kind of documented in these, um, these, these loosely instructional poems um, that's really taken from Yoko Ono, John Cage, um, a lot of kind of fluxus artists and musicians of the 60s and 70s used these. Um, and, you know, they're, they're sort of an invitation to imagine, you know, when someone else is reading them, oh, how would I go about that? Or what, what might I do? Um, but it's a way to document that something happened without actually going through um, the kind of performance of it. So I find that to be a really helpful, uh, a, a helpful documentation practice for me. Um, and then another person who I think is really great at kind of uh, facilitating these kinds of experiences or was for others was Karita Kent. Um, and yeah, her practices, I think have really, that's, they've done a lot for me in my kind of curiosity seeking. You know, in your work, it feels like there is a strong line of feminist practice and like a lineage that you're really working with. Who are some of the mm. artists? Well, it just seems like in your work, there's this strong lineage of feminist practice. And I would love to hear who those artists have been for you and you know, how their work has informed yours. Mm, absolutely. Someone who has been really important to me in the past few years is Meryl Latterman Eucles, who recently had a pretty amazing uh, retrospective at the Queens Museum in New York. Um, and she has had a whole career of a maintenance art-based practice. She was a self-proclaimed artist in residence with the New York Department of Sanitation for many years, I, I believe in the 70s, um, where it was her intention to shake the hands of every single sanitation worker in New York. Um, and this project where she went on every trash route in all the boroughs in New York City um, was after she had written her famous maintenance manifesto um, that was this incredible feminist proclamation at the time. And I think it's actually pretty radical now where, you know, she's talking about maintaining, sustaining, mending. Um, and as, as kind of like the core 
crux of her practice rather than tearing something down and building up from new in your own image, you know, as this kind of like patriarchal way, not only of having a creative practice, but being in the world. And in this manifesto, she says, you know, after the war and the parade, um, who's going to clean up the trash the next morning? Who are those people that after the revolution, um, you know, makes it so we can live our day-to-day lives. And reading that was really, um, I really changed my life. I, I read, I had received that manifesto in undergrad, you know, 12 or 13 years ago, rediscovered it a few years ago, and it completely changed the way in which I thought about working. And it allowed me to connect a lot of interest in craft um, and cooking and um, thinking about supply chains, um, not only in creative practice, but also in the way that, um, I, I live and consume and, and purchase. And, um, it was a great connection point for me to really change the way that I engaged in creative production, um, and made me want to make as little things as possible that would end up in a dumpster. I think as an artist, it's really hard to think about that. And when I made something, how could I then reuse it to make it into something else? How could I make sure that, um, you know, there was kind of as much integrity and honesty in the objects so that the form and the content spoke to one another and, um, and were aligned with one another, I guess. So, you know, it was then that I became more interested in natural dyeing, natural ink making, um, cyanotype photography, um, using materials that I was finding, you know, out in the woods from my house, um, trying to make plans that then could be shared open source for other people to be able to use, um, sharing my teaching materials, accessing, you know, research materials from, um, open source archives, you know, rather than, um, you know, databases that required a paid login, um, and to be as transparent about that as possible. Um, that was a long answer about Euclid's, but she really, um, changed the way that, that I work. And then I suppose some other people, um, would be Pauline Oliveros, Yvonne Rayner, um, Robin Wall Kimmerer, not a creative practitioner, but I think a creative practitioner, um, Helen and Scott Nearing, the Future Farmers, um, Alan Wexler, Ted Purvis, Anna Halperin, all great people. The list goes on. Yeah. (laughs) No, it feels, I mean, so much of what you were talking about with, um, that that inspiration is like is you know that is about culture making right not just mm-hmm. about making that I think all of those practitioners share in their own unique way with kind of a with with a shared set of values right mm-hmm. like not not exactly the same but a a debated and <laughs> kind of constantly being um, reformed set of values. Mm-hmm. About who and how culture gets to be made and who it's for. Right. Um, which, you know, to me feels like there's this great opening right now with that of 
being home and being with ourselves Mm. not like who and how our cultures are who we are when we're with ourselves who we are when we're with our (laughs) families and all of those things and I don't know I think there's a lot to be learned from that right now Mm. yeah it is really interesting to to think about who we are when we aren't in relation to many others um, physically and what happens when we're just in more controlled environments um, when there might not be as many built-in opportunities for spontaneity but then at the same time you know many people have more quote free time or um, time that isn't as rigorously scheduled and so then shouldn't there inherently be more space for play and experimentation or trying a different sort of routine or um, making something out of nothing and not just out of choice but out of necessity Um, I'm really curious as to how people will begin to talk about that and to not just build in more activities to do over zoom you know (laughs) Right. Yeah. Which also has its place and is really important. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm kind of I'm curious for um for some of the other emergent strategies uh that will come out of this. Well thanks Emily. Why don't you just let us know how we can follow along with you and what's next for you? Thank you so much, Chelsea. It's so nice to talk to you. Um what is next is, I think, for many of us, rather unknown. I was going to be doing a project with the Robert Frost House Museum in Bennington, Vermont, this summer um, around natural ink making and um, correspondence. That's on hold at the moment, but we'll see what happens. Um, I would imagine that uh, a collaboration is in the future with my friend Zach Clark, who runs National Monument Press in Oakland. I would totally recommend you follow him. Um, And then in terms of following me, I've totally taken a hiatus from uh, social media, but I hope that this podcast will motivate me to make uh, a website that I feel proud of. (laughs) So feel free to to look me up or follow me on Instagram. I hope to have some more things posted soon. Um, but yeah, my name is just at Emily Terela and I look forward to being in touch, but if anyone wants to talk, you can email me at emilyterela at gmail.com and I'd be delighted to correspond with you. Perfect. That sounds good. Well, thanks so much. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. Thanks for everyone who made this show possible today. Big love to Air of Colors for the music in the show. You can find more of their music at airofcolors.com. If you like this podcast, show us some support by liking it, sharing it with your friends, or leaving a review in the iTunes store. You can also buy tea or donate directly at fullmoonproject.org.